Welcome back in everyone to a wonderful new whisper in the wings. We have an incredible guest returning to us today. I, I can't wait to start this conversation. We have the author Robert Viagas who's joining us today to continue our conversation about his incredible book, Right This Way, A History of the Audience. It's an incredible book. I have had the immense pleasure of reading this, and it's such a wonderful book. It's available right now wherever you get your books from, including the Drama Bookshop, or you can get it online at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and others. I know I saw it at Target. This is a fantastic gift for the theater lover in your life or anyone who's just interested in audience of any kind it explores more than just the theater which is fantastic but this is such a fascinating book and we are so honored to have robert back on our show to talk more in depthly about this piece so with that let us go ahead and welcome back our guest robert welcome back to whisper in the wings from stage whisper Thank you, Andrew. It's, it was a real pleasure to be here last time. Your questions were always were so interesting, and uh, they they really stimulated me to to th think even more deeply about this project. And let me just take a moment to say I love your shirt. Oh, thank you so let much. Me see the whole shirt. I want to see the whole shirt. Awesome, Janine deserves the deserves the yes. Medal. Yes, I'm wearing the Kimberly Akimbo. You know the Gershwin, Rogers, Bernstein, Sondheim, and Tesori. Can't forget her uh, with all of her amazing works. And speaking of amazing works, I loved this book. You know, the first the first most recent book I've read of yours was, of course, Good Morning Olive, which was fabulous. I want more ghost stories from around the theater. I've been more have been coming this. in. There's a lot of ghost stories out there. I've been getting a lot of emails and people telling me their ghost stories. I've been keeping my like. My, my little radars on like when I was just recently at the Belasco theater, I was like, okay, is, is the ghost of David Belasco hanging out around mm -hmm. here? I'm looking forward to getting back to the Lyceum to see if Bob Fosse's hanging out in the balcony. Mm -hmm. So that's been amazing. But most recently you've got this book right this way, history of the audience. And we spoke about it last year as it was coming out. And then you had this great talk back at the drama bookshop where you did a signing and everything. I got my copy, which was wonderful. And I could not put this book down. It was so good. And why don't we start by having you just remind our audience a little bit about what, what right this way, a history of the audience is about. I have seen a lot of shows. I've seen more than 2000 shows just on Broadway. And I, I'm an audience of all different kinds. I, I watch Netflix. I go to ball games. I, I, I go to concerts, etc. And I've just, over the years, just became more and more fascinated with the realization that all these things that are out there we'll focus on the theater for a second the stuff that happens on the stage is is not theater it's designed to evoke theater theater happens out in the audience happens in the hearts and minds of people sitting out in the audience and once that dawned on me and you know I, I sometimes I see people gathered at the stage door waiting to get autographs. Really, the people coming out the door should be asking for the autographs because the people in the audience are the most important collaborators in a situation like this. Having that live audience there and having them re react and having their, their pulse rate go up, 
having their their that light bulb go on in their heads. That is really what the purpose of having all these concerts and and sh TV shows and and musicals on Broadway and uh, etc. That's the whole point of it. And once I realized that, which the idea came to me very early, I started to realize that going into the I, I went to, I would go to the, a bookstore and I'd say I'd like a, a book on the audience please, and they said no well we we have books on composers and playwrights and uh, stars and directors, uh, but we don't really have anything on the audience. And I thought, somebody ought to write a book about the audience, about the history of it, because the history goes way, way back and audiences keep changing over the years. We have to learn new ways to be audiences. And then I realized, I'm just going to have to do it myself. Isn't that the way, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I I love that description because I think it, that is perfect. I, I was not expecting to dive into the audiences of sporting events or political events or television shows. You know, I wasn't expecting that we were going to go down those rabbit holes. I really thought we were just going to be focused on the theater audience. And I also wasn't expecting when I read this book to be taken on such a historical journey as well of the audience, which was so fascinating to understand where the modern audience kind of came from. We, I don't think that's something that people thought of, you know, we, we never, we never go to a, a theater show and think of, look how far the audience has come. You know what I mean? And, and so in reading your book, I was like, wow, actually the way we act and the way we congregate and the way we sit and everything like that, has come a long way. I love the fact, you know, when I, when we saw, I took my mother-in-law to see Parade last season and we were talking and they made use of some of the box seats mm -hmm. uh, in that show. But my mother-in-law was asking, she's like, you know, what, what is the deal with box seats? Like, I feel like they're probably more expensive. Are they really that good? And I said, no. I gotta be honest with you. I've sat one time in a box seat and I really didn't think they were that great. Like, I feel like I was actually missing some of the action. I don't know why people like to sit in them. And in your book, you talk about why box seats exist and everything like that. And I went, I wish I'd had this so that I could have explained <laughs> Well, they come from a time when, when people would dress up a lot more and it was much more of a, a social event. And so people would go in those seats, not so much to see the show, but to be seen. They were part of the show. And yeah, if you've, I've sat in the box seats too and you get like a, a little slice of the stage. You miss the whole back of the stage back where you're sitting. But of course, that's that's not why people sat in those seats. They sat right. there to be seen. And that was another little interesting part of the audience. You talk about history. People, there's so many things that we just take for granted that we're like, oh, these things always existed. You know, I go all the way, if, if I may, I'm just going to jump back to the Greeks for a second because so many things started back then. But they used to have, the, the Greeks used to like to listen to poetry, especially poetry that told stories about their gods like Zeus. And the, what they would do is the poets would come and they would speak their poetry and tell story. Basically, it was an advanced storytelling. And it was so popular that they started having groups of people stand there and intone this poetry. Now think about that. Would you go and see like a gang of like 50 people standing there saying poetry at the same time? It, uh, no, it would be odd. But of course, nowadays, 
that has pretty much died away, except in Broadway musicals where you have 50 people singing and telling you poetry. That's what they're doing. That goes all the way back to the Greeks. But they would talk about Zeus did this, Zeus did that, Zeus, Zeus did these amazing things. And there was one actor, uh, according to history, his name was Thespis, which is where we get thespians from. And Thespis did something incredibly radical and shocked the audience. He stood forward from the group and he said, I am Zeus, and here is what I did. And people were like, he's not Zeus. I've 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 imagined what Zeus is like. That's not what Zeus would looks like. That's not what Zeus sounds like. But then after a while, people are like, well, you know, he actually does a pretty good job as Zeus. I could almost believe that he is Zeus. Look at the way he talks and the way he carries himself. He was the, the considered to be the first actor. I mean, it's not as simple as that, but he's the first one that everybody remembers. And, and and it took the, it was a radical step in theater, but it was a radical step in the audience because the audience had to say to themselves, we're not just hearing a story. We're actually seeing the thing happen and adding a second actor. That was, you know, people, people were up in arms when they added a second actor, like, oh, you're going to put the chorus out of business. <laughs> but even today, even today, audiences have had to learn at Generation after generation, they've had to learn how to be different kinds of audiences. We talk about, look at the difference between how an audience reacts at a concert for classical music, where you have to be at all dressed up and you have to be very, very quiet. You have to be a good, quiet audience. If you unwrap a piece of candy, people will turn around and they'll like glare at you. But if you go to a like a rock concert, you're expected to cheer and yell and light your lighter and and have mosh pits and you're expected to do all these things. And if you did that at a classical concert, they would throw you out. But if you did it at a like a rock concert, people would say, are you not enjoying if, if you were if they were quiet at a rock concert, are you not enjoying it? I mean, even sports. Let, let's go jump over to sports for a second. You go to a, a football game. You're expected to cheer and yell and wave things and blow horns and do the wave, et cetera, et cetera. But if you go to a golf game, a, go a golf tournament, excuse me, you have to be very, very quiet. And they're hunting holes in one. You have to be super, super quiet at, the, at these things. And even the announcers, who the golfers can't hear, they talk like this. And at tennis, you know, you the tennis, you have to be very quiet. But if somebody kind of makes a good shot, it's okay to applaud. But if you are at a baseball game, you're you're supposed to yell and scream, and you're not supposed to throw things. But it's kind of accepted. It's people have to people have learned how to be different kind of audiences. And as time goes along, we're having to learn how to be a Zoom audience. I mean, you know, at the end of 2019, who even heard of Zoom? By the end of 2020, everybody learned how to be on Zoom. They learned that they only had to get dressed from the waist up, but do not stand up. <laughs> Again, it's it, we have just had to learn how to be oh, so many different kinds of, of audiences. And people are people are willing to do it. They're willing to do it. I could keep going like this. You're going to have to stop me because I, <laughs> I get very excited about this. And I don't want this to be a monologue. Well, I, and I... I just, I could listen to you talk about all this because uh, listeners, this is exactly what you get in the book. I, as I was reading, I could just hear your voice narrating this book. It's so brilliant the way that you explain this. I, I, I loved it from cover to cover. 
Now, I'm curious to know, I mean, you have a lot of body of work. I mean, we've mentioned Good Morning Olive, but that's not just the only books you've written. I mean, you go all the way back you with your time with Playbill when you used to do the I Playbill. started Playbill.com. Yeah. I think I told you last time, I, I when I was a kid, I didn't understand why there wasn't a newspaper just for theater that came out every day. I'm not talking about once a month. Every day it had to come out. And people thought I was insane. And then suddenly the internet came along and I said... I could have a theater newspaper that came out every single day or several times a day because it was important to me. To, and also for people to know that theater isn't something that happened long ago and far away, that it was something that was happening right now and would be continuing to happen, you know, for for the till 2030, till 2040, till 2050. And the fact that it was not just live to go to, but it was live in our culture was important to me. And so that's why I started it. So you've you've done all these incredible things. You've covered all of these incredible facets of the theater. What exactly inspired you to write this book this time? The audience book. So again, knowing that the, it was an un, underserved readership, that these are that people didn't realize the role that they play in all these things. That it's it's not for the actors. It's not for the critics. All of those things, like I said, the, the the actor should ask the audience for the their autographs because it's all for the audience. And and the the notion that that people's lives could be changed, that people's thoughts could be changed, that people's hearts could be changed, sometimes in a bad way. I mean, we've seen this again and again over the years, dictators giving speeches that riled people up to do terrible things. One of my favorite moments in the, the in the book, people have written a lot about, about the Lincoln assassination, but nobody wrote about what it was like to be in the house that night. Don't forget, these are people who, they've been lived through the Civil War, but they had no television, no internet. They didn't really know what the president looked like and sounded like. They may have seen a drawing of, of the president, and early, you know, very early photographs, but those were not necessarily widely distributed. People had an idea. They read his speeches and things like that, but they didn't know what he looked and sounded like. Suddenly, on this night, four days after the end of the Civil War, four days earlier, the South had surrendered. And the, the Lincolns just, you know, they'd had a rough friggin', you know, five years. They decided to go out to see a show because Lincoln loved to go to see shows. He And the... the the cornier the jokes, the better, the better he liked them. And he just decided, well, we'll go out to see a show tonight. They had, they were invited to two shows that night. One of them was kind of more of a circus show, but our American cousin was put on by a, a group run by a woman named Mrs. Keene. And in those days, they didn't have unions, they didn't have pensions. So what would happen is as, an, as a performer got older, they would have these benefit performances and all the proceeds would go to whoever it was. So this was Mrs. Keene's night. And Lincoln had seen Mrs. Keene over the years. And he said to, he said to his wife, said to Mary, let's do Mrs. Keene a favor. Let's go see her show and we'll tell everybody that we're going so that they'll get, it'll be a sold out crowd and she'll make Obama money. That was why he went to see the show that night. And so, unfortunately, a lot of people knew that he was going to be in the theater and be up in that box to be seen. And one of them was John Wilkes Booth, the, the assassin, for those who don't know, the uh, eventual assassin. And so 
what I did was I went to the Library of Congress because they have incredible archives there. And I read accounts that they gathered from people who were sitting in the audience that night. And they talk about what, what it was like to see Abraham Lincoln for the first time to see how careworn and, and sad he looked. But then he would tell one of these corny jokes. There was a, a, a joke in there about a dog's tail. And he like was roaring with laughter. And so th their hearts were pounding listening. They said it was like the father watching them enjoy the show. Because they said he was watching the audience during the show. And they said it felt like they were gathered in the parlor with their father watching them. Think about that. And they were listening to him laughing. And the fact that he laughed just raised the whole spirit of the audience that this guy who had been through so much was having such a good time that night. And then, of course, the fatal shot rings out and the audience is in horror all of a sudden. And I have an account of a guy who was sitting right underneath the presidential box and saw Booth leap out onto the stage and break his ankle. And they decided they were going to catch him. <laughs> <laughs> they decided they were going to. And so they jumped onto the stage. But Booth knew the backstage. He was an actor. He'd been at the theater many times. He knew the way out. They, they kind of got lost, but they almost caught him. And I, I, I think I may have mentioned this the last time I was on. One of the guys got Booth's hat. And he this was his he was like this was his trophy that he actually got Booth's hat. And then they, there was what it was like being in the theater, hearing Mrs. Lincoln crying, and the, the they they said they they tore the the seats out in their in their horror and misery and frustration. And I just think what a what a what a night, what a night, and and what a what a audience, what it was like to be in the audience to see this thing that changed the history of the world by being in an audience that night. And so that's the that's one of the things that uh, that I wanted to capture in this book. I wouldn't mind talking a little about a bit about Maria Abramovich too. Maria Abramovich yes, was yes. was a you, you introduce please introduce it. You did such a good job when we were talking earlier. Yes, well I'm glad you brought her up because she came she she recently was brought up in a previous episode that aired that I had a wonderful conversation with another artist who who has a show here at Intar. Her name is Florencia Lozano. Her show Fun with Panic Attacks. She was talking about performance art and and such and she had mentioned Maria Abramovich and her show in 1974 in Naples where she she laid out and 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 she left all these things from feathers to knives out, and she basically would allow audiences like passersby to come and do whatever they wanted to her. And they locked them in for six hours. She just lay on a table with all these these. There were flowers, but there were also knives. There were all yeah. these different props. They laid out on a table. They gave the audience no directions. Other than they could do whatever they wanted for six hours. And what a, a, a courageous thing to, for her to do. Insane in some ways, because you're leaving yourself completely. It's not like she had uh, guards. She left herself completely at the mercy of the audience to see what, how the audience would react, how what the audience would do with the props, what the audience would do with her. And... And it was a fascinating, fascinating experiment that revealed so much about about human about human behavior. 
about human thoughts, about how the audience reacts to something like that. When we're sitting in the theater, we have that nice safe fourth wall that's protecting the actors and protecting us. A lot of people hate when the actors like ask the audience questions or ask them to come up on stage and do things. They violate that that fourth wall. Maria eliminated the fourth wall and mm -hmm. said the audience and the and the performer are one and they share the same physical space. And what the how the audience reacted was just horrifying, inspiring. People undressed her. They they cut her. They, she was bleeding, and then a group of the audience, audience people, were like no 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 no, we must protect her, and they they formed a phalanx to to protect her, and it was just people wanted to execute incredible violence on this perform. They had paid a ticket to see her. They wanted to harm her. They wanted to humiliate her. Other people wanted to protect her. They wanted to save her. And, and this was unscripted. This is just letting the audience do whatever they want. She never did that the same way again. She she was a, a lot more careful when she did it again in the future. And it was, you know, it was horrifying to her how the negative parts, but it was inspiring to her that the audience, a, a faction of the audience rose up to protect her. What a, what a snapshot of, of humanity <laughs> that was for that audience. And, you know, stuff like that just fascinates me because stuff like that happens certainly on a much less visceral scale every time we see a show, every time we see a show or listen to a politician or go to a ball game, you know, kill that bum, you know, <laughs> you know, you suck. You know, you hear sometimes at, at ball games and things like that. And it's like the. Luckily, they keep a little fence there to protect the players from their audience. But also, you know, I'm going to jump over to another thing. Religious audiences, congregations, people come yes. together, people come together to to worship. And during COVID, remember, people were willing to to threaten their lives to be in, to go to church together, to be in, 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 in a place of worship together because they felt that worshiping the deity whatever the deity is had more significance if they were together if they were together in a group if they were an audience and you know some people do go there they they you know you think about it in the old days before there was recorded music people used to sing together they would have you know there was a piano in the parlor and people would sing now we let the professionals do the sing but when you go to church or temple or, or one of these other, any of these other religious things, suddenly people are singing together. And it's one thing to sing by yourself. You feel a little silly singing by yourself. But when you're with a big group of people, that's fine. That's good. That it's even better to hear other people singing. And that's to me is another fascinating part of the audience. The whole, I, I know the religious people wouldn't necessarily want to be described as an audience, a congregation we'll call them, but it's still an audience. It's still something people are doing together while they're watching something and participating. So that's a, that's kind of a positive thing, but even among religious audiences, you know, you, if you go to a Methodist church, it's, it's, you know, it's a very quiet contemplative sort of a thing. But if you go to a Baptist church, people are singing, people are dancing, they're waving their hands. It's, it's fascinating to me how, how people, even audiences that are worshiping a supreme being see that there are different ways to do that as audiences. I, 
all of this. This is incredible. I and I love that that you mentioned the religious audiences because that was another big chapter in your book. <laughs> the the chapters are just fantastic in this book. They they lead one into the other, and the questions that that you you kind of leave with each chapter are fantastic. It leaves you kind of pondering about that. And the religious chapter one really stuck with me because I was like, I never thought of it that way. I I did never think of a religious congregation as an audience or or, or as a worship service as an audience, but I'm kind of like, yeah, you know what? It, it is a little bit like that, you know? And I never thought of it during the pandemic in that same way where I was like, I was upset because I couldn't go to the theater. Wow, there were people probably just as upset that they couldn't gather for church. Wow, did not even put us on the same level. So your book kind of put a lot of things into perspective. And I'm curious to know, is there do you have a favorite chapter in your book of, of all these all this stuff that we've kind of covered so far? Is is there a particular chapter in your book that, that just catches your eye a little more than the others? You know, I, I have to tell you, I had originally organized the book in a slightly different way. My editor at Applause Books asked me to change some things around. But I, I, I like, I think my favorite part of the book is talking about how audiences have changed over time. And I think we, we talked about this a little bit last time, how a hundred years ago, ethnic humor people blacking up, people talking in accents. I mean, think of Chico Marx doing his Italian accent. I found a, a clip of the old Jackie Gleason show. Jackie Gleason, there was a, the, the, he had a skit that he would do periodically where he was a bartender and a retarded man would come in and he was known as Crazy Guggenheim. And say, how are you doing, Mr. Dunahee? And he would talk in this exaggerated way uh, uh just a, a parody of of the way of the way a a retarded person a, a mentally challenged person might talk but you no know, it was played for humor and then the, the 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 topper of that was then he would sing opera or something like that and he would, suddenly he would have this beautiful voice but audiences laughed at that and I was looking at a clip online. I said, how on earth did we ever laugh at this? And as I said, blackface. Blackface, there was a period of time when blackface was the dominant entertainment form in this country in the form of minstrel shows. And it was just completely accepted. But at the same time, blue humor, sexual humor, was considered to be something that would could kill your career. In vaudeville, they had rules backstage. And they used to have somebody who would watch the vaudeville shows. And if you came out with a joke that was even slightly dirty, you could be blackballed and you would not be able to work. They formed burlesque so that that was a place where they could do more of the uh, sexual humor. But in vaudeville and in mainstream theater, you could not do this. Otherwise, your career would be destroyed. Here we are now in the 21st century where it has completely switched around. If you do ethnic humor, you are canceled. Your career is over. If they find an old clip of you doing blackface, you're done, pal. You are done. But there's sexual humor everywhere. Kids on sitcoms to, um, make sexual jokes. And people, they just laugh their heads off. But one thing that, and, and so I talk about how audiences have changed even over the course of my lifetime. The things that people, um, I, I talk about the uh, the movie Arthur. Arthur was a movie about a rich drunk guy and he was always intoxicated. And it, oh man, that movie it was a huge hit. It was so funny. And then like 10 years later, maybe less than 10 years, they did a sequel, Arthur 2. And they tried to bring this character back. Dudley Moore played the, the part. 
And it just wasn't funny anymore. It just wasn't funny anymore. Drunks, what we know now about what they do to families, what they do when they drive, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly it just wasn't in that short period of time. What audiences would accept as, as sense of humor had changed dramatically. Uh, I like that's a part, favorite part of my book. <laughs> I also like the Indiana Jones section of the book where I talk about what I did was I took one scene from the original Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and analyzed the scene where the Nazis have put the Ark of the Covenant in a truck and it's protected by Jeeps with machine guns and motorcycles and everything. And they are going to take it off. They're going to bring it to Hitler. And Indy, Indy sees this and he goes, I'm going after that truck. I'm going after that truck, he says. And very, uh, uh, he's determined. And you see the truck driving and you think, how is this one guy going to get this truck? And so I go, I go beat by beat through that scene. The trucks are driving along and Indy suddenly rides up on a white horse. Where the hell did he get that horse? It's the desert. But he, he should be on a camel. And you, and minute by minute in that scene, the, the envir physical environment is constantly changing. One minute he's in a jungle. The next minute he's in the desert. The next minute they he, he sends these motorcycles into a, into a giant mud puddle. Where does this mud puddle come from? And then suddenly there's a big cliff that's like, that looks like hundreds and hundreds of feet deep. But you know what? The audience just goes with it. The audience, we talk about suspension of disbelief, which is so important suspension of disbelief we just go with it minute by minute and the, and the reactions that you get even things like on the playback they're pl you know, they play dun, 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 the indiana jones thing but then when indy's in trouble it looks like he's going to get killed suddenly the music shifts into a minor key and and it's like the audience is not listening for it to go into minor key all the audience knows is indy's in trouble and the, the music tells you that Indy's in trouble. We are so used to responding to music in the background without realizing that it's there, without realizing that it's helping to tell the story. And and so I just go through that entire scene. I just, you know, I, I just love that part of the book. <laughs> I would love to like do that live somewhere, like show that scene and and be able to stop it and, and walk people through that scene. I also walk through uh, the, the scene in Romeo and Juliet at the end where he... Th he thinks that she's dead. She, she's just taken a, a potion to make herself appear to be dead. And he thinks that she's dead. And all the emotions that constantly switch in that scene, uh, excitement, delight, horror, fear, uh, you know, just one emotion after another. And, the, and it's just so beautifully orchestrated without music, except in West Side Story. But th that's, I, I think that's probably my, my favorite part of the book where I show you how an audience reacts moment by moment in these very, very famous scenes. I love that. And I have to tell you, full disclosure, the Indiana Jones scene, I completely missed my stop on the train because I was just so sucked in. I was like, yes, yes. And then, you know, and I, I've seen the film, of course, but I was just like, Mm -hmm. yep. And that's, I thought that too. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it was so good. Oh, I love that. So I, I had fun writing it too. I had fun writing it. I I have I sat there and watched that scene like ten times. Like <laughs> my wife wanted to watch it with me, and then after a while, she was like, "Are you gonna watch it again?" I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's more to the movie, right? <laughs> <laughs>
the second part of our interview. We love letting our listeners get a chance to know our guests a little bit more. We've had you on before. And I know we're a little short on time. Uh I'm curious to know, you know, would you be able to share another of your favorite theater memories with us? All right. My first Broadway show I ever saw, I went with a class trip. I had been interested in in theater before that, but I I didn't think of it as a separate thing. Also, I you know, I grew up watching TV. I didn't know anything about live theater. I know it seems odd and I didn't see my first show till I was my first Broadway show till I was 15. I had seen some other shows at like Westbury Music Fair, which is a local a local performing venue here. And I'd been in a show and when I was in fifth grade, but I, I didn't think of, I didn't think of them as a separate thing. And we went on a class trip to see Man of La Mancha, which is very theatrical, very theatrical. And it starts out, the stage is a, the stage is a, a giant collective cell where all these criminals have been thrown. And from the top of the back of the stage, this huge st- stairway like a gangplank lowers down into this this dungeon and down the stairs comes the uh, Cervantes the author and he's clutching a package and he's there with his uh his servant and he's been accused of by the uh, Spanish Inquisition (laughs) he's been accused by the Spanish Inquisition of heresy because of something that he wrote and he's been arrested and he's been condemned to death for this. And he's being thrown into this dungeon with all these criminals. And he, the only thing he has with him is a manus- is this package. And once he gets down there, they, they pull, take the package away from him. They were, they were going to destroy it. And he's like, no, please, please don't. It's a, it's a story I wrote. It's a, it's a really important story I wrote. And they're like, well, 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 what's the story? Why, why, why should we not destroy this? And then he asks, he tells them, all right, I'm going to tell you the story, but I want each of you to play a part in, in this story. I'll give you a, the part that you're going to play. And he says, and I'm going to play the main character, Don Quixote de la Mancha. And he, and he, st- and he starts to, he, he takes little things that are around there and he, he whiffs up his hair and he creates a beard and he turns into Don Quixote. And then he proceeds to tell the whole story. I'm getting choked up thinking about this. Here I am, little 15-year-old Robert, and and I this was this is what this is how I watched the show. Every single thing about the show was fascinating to me. It just struck chords in me. That's how I was the my first time I was an audience for a Broadway show. And it was so theatrical and it was so powerful. And it, it, I, I was never the same after that. I'm, I'm choked up thinking about it. I was never the same after seeing that show. And after, it's carried me through all these years. It's carried me through all these years. You know, that's, that is always a, a, a little moment of joy that I can tap into. And I've seen some very theatrical shows and I've written about them and I've written whole books about them. I remember my parents taking me to see the Fantastics at, at Westbury Music Fair. And there's a moment in the show when they're kind of making fun of the old actor. Uh, the old actor he wants to he wants to be part of this uh, this abduction scene. That's not what they called it in the original, but that's what we'll call it today. The abduction scene. And uh, El Gallo says, "Well, you know, you can do Shakespeare." He says, "Well, uh, uh, give me a uh, give me a speech from Shakespeare." And the old actor is flummoxed for a second; he doesn't know what to do, and he starts to he makes up a speech 
consisting of bits and pieces of Shakespeare. And he goes, friends, Romans, countrymen. And he pauses because he can't think of the next line. He goes, screw your courage to the sticking place. And it, it is all bits and pieces of Shakespeare things. And the audience burst out laughing when he said, screw your courage to the sticking place. Why? Because it sounded dirty. That's why. And they laughed hysterically. And I turned to my parents with, with my big brown eyes and I said, why is everybody laughing? And my parents obviously didn't get the Shakespearean joke either because you're supposed to know enough Shakespeare to know that those lines don't go together. And afterward in the car, I said, can you please explain to me why that was such a funny line? And they said, well, we'll tell you when you're older. And I said to myself, these theater things are filled with mysterious knowledge that only grown-ups can know about. I'm going to have to see more of these things because it's filled with fascinating forbidden secrets. And that that also that also changed my life and and i was right it is filled with amazing forbidden secrets and there's and there's always more new ones and I, i'm always i always love to go because i think i'm going to learn something new and and you know something i still do i still learn something new every time i go to see a show and I, it's one of the things i love about being an audience i, I i'm a really good i'm a really good audience for magicians because i can never figure out how they did it so to me, it always seems like magic. So I'm I'm like the perfect audience for magicians because again, I can. Other people are like, I know how he does that. I'll tell you. I said, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I, I want to think that it's magic. I wanted to think that he saw that lady in half and then put her back together again. That is just so cool. How can you possibly do that? That's just me. And that is all of what I just described to you is all in the DNA of this book. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And furthermore, I love those memories. That Man of La Mancha story is so beautiful. And I am so lucky on behalf of everyone that you got to go on that school trip. Because, I mean, <laughs> to think what we would have been without if you had not seen Man of La Mancha. I mean, oh, my gosh. A world without Robert Viagas. Oh, theater world without Robert Viagas. No, I don't even want to think about it. The, that was the, my the, teacher, Miss Heidengren. She had us do The Odd Couple, and I was Felix in The Odd Couple. Yes. And I had so much fun. I had so much fun doing it. That is amazing. Thank you so much for those memories. Those are incredible. I love that. <laughs> Where am I going to get gravy at 8 o'clock? <laughs> well, Robert... Do you have any other projects coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? Oh, dude, dude, I, I am working on a project that is such a project of the heart. A part of what also inspired this book is I have been going to the up in Boston at Somerville Cinema. They do every February President's Day weekend, a science fiction movie marathon. You know my interest in theater. I have a whole almost equal interest in science fiction. I have all nerdy interests. I love science fiction and it's 24 hours of science fiction movies from noon till noon Sunday till noon Monday. They have it every President's Day weekend. I started going to SF4. This year is going to be SF49. I have never missed a single one. I go every year because the audience is such a great audience. They boo the bad they hiss the bad guy when the bad guy comes out. Oh, frequently it's easy to tell who the bad guy is. They hiss the bad guy. And uh, they talk back to the screen. I myself personally own two 
ray guns. And when the bad guys are attacking, when the monsters are coming, we all shoot the screen with our with our ray guns. It is just such a great thing. And they approached me last year. They said, we're coming up on our 50th anniversary. Would you please write a book about the marathon? I mentioned the marathon in the audience book, by the way. Um, I, I am in the process of writing a whole book about the history of this crazy marathon and all the, the crazy people who go to it and all the traditions that we have and and all the fun we have as an audience. So it's really, in, in many ways, it's audience book part two, because it's about one specific audience over the course of a half a century. That is amazing. And one listening to you talk about this festival got me excited, but then reading about it, I was like, you know, I'm not the biggest sci-fi guy, but I kind of want to just check this out. I mean, you were talking about how not only does this festival have all these great, this great collage of, of old and new sci-fi, but you also got all the commercials there with it too. And I was like, oh, wow, this could be a lot of fun, you know, so. They used to show episodes of a, of a Buck Rogers serial. Because they used to have these things where it was like a 10 minute movie and you had to have, you'd see it one Saturday and then you had to come. If you want to find out, there would be a cliffhanger at the end. Oh, my God. Buck Rogers had to have been killed in that crash. And you had to come back the next week to see how he survived it. And what they would when several years they did this, they would show episodes of this serial in between the movies. It was it was so great. And you really started to see things like when they would be in a room that had like a lot of boxes, things that were breakable and cheap, you, you knew there was a fight was coming. So the whole audience starts yelling, fight, fight, fight. And then sure enough, they do, they fight. Oh, um, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> oh. It is so much fun. And so I, I'm writing a book, of, uh, a book about that. And it's called, it came from the Orson Welles because the first movie theater it was in was Orson Welles Cinema up in Boston. So that's going to be coming out in 25 in time for the 50th anniversary of the marathon. That's amazing. Well, it sounds like we've got a lot to keep track of then. And that's perfect for my final question, which is if our listeners would like more information about Right This Way, History of the Audience, or about you, maybe they'd like to reach out to you. How can they do so? Well, there they have. There's a bio of me on Amazon, and you can see all my crazy books that I wrote over the years. I was the editor of the Playbill Broadway Yearbook for ten years. I wrote a book with the original cast of a chorus line called On the Line: The Creation of a Chorus Line. I wrote a book with the original cast of the Fantastics. I never forgot my interest in the Fantastics. I really wanted to dig all the way in, so I. I wrote a whole book on the on the fantastics. I wrote it with a guy named Don Farber. So and you can find out about all about all these crazy things that I've written over the years. The audience book is my 22nd book and 23 is on its way. And I also I'm negotiating to do 24. I can't talk about it yet, but it's going to be super exciting also. So that's the best way. Amazing. Oh, well, I cannot wait for 23 and 24. But Robert. I want to thank you so much for coming back on and talking more about 22, which is right mm -hmm. this way, history of the audience. It, it's been such a delight speaking with you again. And furthermore, thank you for writing this book. It was such a delight reading it. I've loved it to be done. Somebody had to do it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that they got you too, because it was absolute perfection. It was such thank a wonderful you. book. So thank you again for stopping by and speaking with us. Thank you for your time today. 
My pleasure. Thank you. You're a great interviewer and your excitement about the theater and your excitement is is incredibly inspiring to me. And and it just makes me just want to go on to 26 and 27. Oh, thank you for that. And I hope that happens. I'm I'm so excited about that. <laughs> My guest today has been the author Robert Viagas, whose book Right This Way, A History of the Audience, is available now wherever you get books, especially at the Drama Bookshop or online at Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, and others. This is such an incredible book. You need it. You need to read it. Get it on your bookshelf. You can get it pretty much anywhere you get books. It's a very fabulous read, a fascinating read. 10 out of 10, cannot recommend it enough. And you know what it pairs well with? His other book, Good Morning Olive. I had the pleasure of reading those back to back and they were absolutely so wonderful. So right now, run, don't walk. Get your copy of Right This Way, A History of the Audience by Robert Viagas. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.